Father, we thank you for your great faithfulness. We pray that um, you will continue to speak your faithfulness to us through your word. And may we have ears to hear and hearts to receive. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. When I was in college, we had a, a pretty good men's basketball team. They, uh, in fact, one of the players on the team was invited to a tryout with the uh, Seattle Supersonics, which was an NBA franchise at that time. And uh, it was exciting. The crowd in the, in the gym continued to grow as they kept winning games. And uh, we all would be excited and, you know, really hyped up for the games. And got to the end of the regular season, and we're in the playoffs. In our first game, we had to go downstate to Southern Oregon State College. And so uh, about six or so of us decided we'd get in the car and we would drive the three or so hour drive down there to be a part of this great event in the life of our campus. So we got down there, we, you know, we got in the gym and we were, we were all hyped up. And it quickly became apparent that if we thought that it was raucous in our home gym, this was something totally different. I mean, there were twice as many people, they were twice as loud, they were twice as crazy, and unlike our home games, it seemed like a number of the students there had been drinking things other than Diet Coke, and uh, it, it was a pretty raucous group, and so we started out, you know, with the game, and, we, you know, we, we did well uh, uh, as a game, and we were all cheering, but it became quickly apparent that our little group, there were six of us and a few others from George Fox who were there, our little group was greatly outnumbered in this crowd. And, and the crowd was letting us know that. And as the game progressed, not only were they heckling our players, but they started heckling us as well. And we became quieter and quieter as the game went along. I have to tell you, I was not all that disappointed that we lost that game. I'm not sure we would have gotten out of there one piece if our team had won. It was a crazy environment. But I learned something that night. I learned that it's not easy to be totally yourself when you're not the home team. And I think there is something of that idea in the entire book of Esther. When you read through the book of Esther, what you find is that God's people who have been who are exiles in Persia they are a long ways from being the home team, and it is difficult to be themselves. It's difficult to do what they want to do, to live their lives the way they're called to live them. And we see that particularly in this third chapter of Esther. It all starts with Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's, probably her uncle or maybe her cousin, close relative. And he's a member uh, of the the people and the administrators in the palace, and this decree goes out from the king that everybody, Haman's been promoted, everyone needs to bow in respect to Haman, and Mordecai refuses to do that. Mordecai says, I'm not bowing to him. It, you know, it, it's, it's shades of Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are told that everyone needs to bow down to this huge idol of King Nebuchadnezzar, and they refuse. Now, you look at this, you say, well, that was, a, that was an idol to worship. This is just a man showing him respect. But as Elaine Bernias writes, she says that, that there's something about the self-glorification of Haman 
that really makes it feel like it's idolatry. And I think Mordecai feels that because the narrator tells us uh, the next verse, he says that, that they, he got in trouble and he, they, as the other administrators went to Haman, the whole point of that was that Mordecai was a Jew. There's something about being a Jew in this atmosphere that he says, I can't do that. And that starts the whole ball rolling. And Haman begins to, when Haman hears about it, he's furious. Haman has an interesting history. And actually, the history between Mordecai and Haman, it, it, it may be deeper than it just appears on the surface. The writer tells us that, it calls him Haman the Agagite. And the Agagites are, historically, that many of scholars believe, that goes back to the Amalekite people. The Amalekites and the Israelites have an interesting history. When the Israelites come out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, the, the Egyptians are taken care of, and they start their way through the desert. And the Amalekites, unprovoked, out of nowhere, attack the back part of the Israelite clan. I mean, the Israelites are not warriors. They're shepherds. And they're just making their way across the desert, and the Amalekites decide, we're going to try to take them out. And they fight back, and the Israelites eventually win. That's the story of, of Moses, his arms being held up. They eventually win, and at the end of that, God says to Moses, I'm going to take care of the Amalekites. I am going to, to pay them back at some point down the road. When you get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is the king. And God says to Samuel, now is the time. Now is the time for, for me to deal with the evil of the Amalekites. And Saul takes the Israelite army and defeats them. He's supposed to, to eliminate all of them, but he saves, some, he saves the king and some of the spoils. And the king's name is Agag. And it seems at least that... that the more that Haman is somehow at least a descendant in some form of King Agag because he's called an Agagite. There is in, in whatever, however the history plays out, there is definitely in Haman sort of an archetype of evil. That like the Amalekites, his goal, his plan is to be used by the evil one to destroy and eliminate God's people. You get a sense of the deep hatred that Haman has, not just for Mordecai, but for all of the Jewish people. As the writer says, it's not enough for Haman to respond to Mordecai. He decides what he wants to do is eliminate all of Mordecai's people. He wants to eliminate all of them because the evil one is using him as a, his plan, his goal is to eliminate all the witness of God's people on this earth. The evil one is continually doing that. And Haman, so Haman goes to the king and speaking half-truths to the king about the Israelites convinces Xerxes to join him in this endeavor of annihilation. When you get to this point in the story, it certainly appears as if the evil one has checkmate. Haman has all this money he's going to contribute to cover the costs of this venture. He has the entire power of the greatest empire on the earth at that time at his disposal. What in the world can this group of exiles 
spread out all over. How are they in the world? Are they going to do anything about that? And the most troubling part of the story at this point is that it not only appears that the evil one has everything under his control, it also seems to appear that God is nowhere in the story. And then you come to this whole thing about casting lots. Casting lots is a common experience, common thing for people in the ancient Near East and in ancient cultures. It was a way in which they would, they would bring the, 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 the mindset of the gods into what they were doing. God has his own people cast lots from time to time. They cast lots to decide who's going to get what land throughout Israel. They cast lots to decide which priests are going to serve at which times during the course of the year. When you get to the New Testament, the disciples cast lots to see which, who's going to replace Judas. So it's, it's a common practice. But those things are different. Those are ways in which God can direct his people with wisdom. Haman comes and says, I've got this plan to destroy an entire group of people, entire nation of, of people. And I want, the God, I want people to know the gods are with me. So we're going to cast lots to bring them into this. And it's going to set the date of when this is going to happen. Now I have to tell you, when I re- every time I read this story, I think to myself, Haman is not the wisest person on the face of the earth. He's not what you'd call an evil genius. I mean, if you really want to get rid of people, you just do it. He has all the power, all the money that he needs to just do it. And instead, he wants to go through this, this whole thing so that he can, he can bring the gods into it. And, and there is a way in which sometimes evil can't, is so arrogant it can't get out of its own way. It makes me think of that old Batman TV show. Remember that? I mean, that's the real Batman. All these other movies that have been made, they're just trying to live up to that. That wonderful show from the 1960s, that campy, crazy show, if you remember it. Right? Those pictures bring you to mind. There was always a two-part episode. Part one, Batman and Robin encounter these uh, villains, you know, the Penguin, the Joker, the Riddler, Catwoman, all these villains, and they're trying to stop them from their nefarious activity, and in the course of it, as it comes to an end, Batman and Robin are captured, and they are placed in some type of device or something that over a period of time will eventually eliminate the dynamic duel. And then the villain, having this whole thing set up, walks away and leaves. I've never wondered, I always wondered, why would you do that? And invariably, when part two starts, here they are, about to have their lives ended, and somehow, in the nick of time, they use some bat device to get themselves out of it. The bat boomerang, or the bat cycle, or something that they use to get out of it, and then they, they conquer the villains. And there's something of that kind of mindset here with Haman. It's, it, it, it reminds me that evil can be so arrogant that it doesn't realize that it's actually working against itself. But I also think God is in the middle of that. I think God prevents that kind of behavior because God is in the casting of the lots. When you look at what happens when they cast lots, there could not have been a date more advantageous for the Jews than the one that's chosen. As the writer says, it's nearly a year later. And as the story progresses, 
we find that that year is used by, uh, by God to rescue his people. And when it seems like God is not at work, he is. Because the reality of our God is that he is the almighty God. However powerful, however great any forces against him may seem to be, they are not anywhere close to the power of Yahweh. And, and God will maintain his witness in the world. I think that this is what it's about. It's not just saving Mordecai. It's not just saving a group of people, as important as that is. This is about sparing and maintaining God's witness in this world to accomplish his great purposes of redemption and restoration of his creation. This is not just about sparing people's lives. This is about the ultimate purposes of God that the evil one is continually attempting to eliminate and destroy. And God says that people, nothing, no power will ever eliminate his witness from this earth. No matter what it looks like. That's the promise God makes to Elijah when he despairs for anybody else who's following him. It's the promise God makes to people like Jeremiah and other prophets. It's the promise that Jesus makes to Peter when he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And sometimes it seems that the evil one has such a hold on this world. And that the evil one has so much power and is able to do whatever he wants to do. And that the church is at such risk Sometimes the fear can overwhelm us. And we wonder to ourselves, is it going to is it going to survive? Is church is the church going to make it? Is God's witness going to be preserved? And I want to tell us today God is still king. And he will always maintain his witness. And he will accomplish his ultimate purposes of redemption and restoration no matter what it may seem like. No matter what it may appear is happening. That's our hope. That's our faith. That's our life. And it doesn't mean that we won't have trouble if you look at Hebrews 11, it's this litany of the trouble that people have who follow God. But in the end, God comes out and says, but God is still faithful. And the evil one will not defeat his ultimate purposes. And sometimes it's hard to see that. I'm finding that one of the signs of spiritual maturity is that we begin to see God a little more clearly than we used to. But I'm also convinced that one of the greater signs of spiritual maturity is that we are beginning to trust God more even when we can't see. Even when everything appears to be going the wrong direction, even when 
it appears that fear is the only response that we could possibly have. It's in those moments that our faith is tested. Do we still believe that God is who he says he is? Do we trust? It's in those moments that, that we find, that we, that we, we see the faithfulness of God and, and, we are, and our hearts and our minds and our wills are put to the test of will we trust him? Do we believe that God is who he says he is now and forever? Do we believe? I think the means of grace are so important for us here. How do we develop the kind of vision that sees God? How do we develop this deeper level of trust with God? I'm convinced that the only way we can do that is in, is in practicing the means of grace. And sometimes they, they seem to us to be, I don't know, uh, a, a struggle. To, to spend time with God, listening and speaking and, and spending time in the Word, really, really engaging with what God has written to us. And in, in things like fasting and corporate worship and private worship and all these things, I love the fact that, that the, through the history of the church, they're often referred to as the means of grace because they are that. They're the means by which we experience more and more of God's grace. And our eyes are opened. And we learn to trust. But I'm also convinced that we learn to trust when we need to trust. It's easy to say we trust when we don't really need to trust. But when circumstances and situations come at us, individually and corporately, that create anxiety and fear and worry, it's in those moments that we learn to trust that God is good and he's faithful. I think this is a story in chapter 3 of Esther that is calling us to trust in God's good and faithful providence. That despite what it looks like, he knows what he's doing. And that despite what it may seem, God is king. He's in control. And we can trust him. I'm not sure there's any clearer evidence of that than this table. And when we come to this table and we celebrate the death of Jesus, that moment that looks as if the evil one wins. But it's a facade. Christ wins. God is still king. And we celebrate that truth in the bread and the cup of his wondrous grace. Holy Father, we thank you that you are good and faithful, that we can trust you. We ask, Father, that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing 
upon the bread and the cup of which we partake today. May it be food for our souls. May it be a moment to experience anew who you are and to know that we can trust you. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.